2: good morning it's 830 on Wednesday June 28th I'm Desiree Frazier this is Mississippi edition on MPB think Radio on today's show Mississippi is getting 1.2 billion dollars an in infusion of federal funds to bring high-speed internet to underserved areas then commercial oyster harvesting along the Gulf Coast is in a decades long decline plus this week's history as lunch examines a case of roadhouse justice. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. $1.2 billion. That's how much Mississippi will receive in federal grant funding to expand high-speed Internet. The grants are part or paid for by the Broadband Equity Access and Deployment Program established through the Biden administration's Infrastructure and Jobs Act. Republican Senator Roger Wicker and Democratic Representative Benny Thompson were the state's only two members of Congress who voted in favor of the bill. Wicker posted a short video on Twitter this week celebrating the investment.
1: I'm glad I was able to work with groups like the Farm Bureau and others other economic groups, to make sure this reaches Mississippians where they need it. I think it's going to be a great boost for economic development and for, uh, again, for our small towns and rural communities.
2: The newly created Office of Broadband Expansion and Accessibility of Mississippi, or BEAM, it's called, will administer the funding through a competitive grant process. The office is led by Sally Doty but the Public Service Commission lobbied for its creation. Chairman Dane Maxwell, who also represents the Southern District for the commission, tells our Lacey Alexander this investment in high-speed infrastructure is in line with the state's commitment to expand access.
1: We led the nation in laying fiber, and we are going to continue to do that with this additional funding, and we have, we have transformed uh, the Internet access here in Mississippi and this is just gonna you know further move that ball down the field and I'm excited about it I know that the, the people of Mississippi are excited about it those people that ha, that aren't served internet this is going to help them so much and the underserved is going to help and, and and it does transform their lives so this is so exciting I'm thrilled to death I know Director Doty with the BEAM office is, is excited. They have worked hard preparing uh, for these uh, these additional funds, including the $151 million from the capital project fund. Uh, those grants are going to be uh, available soon, and uh, they're going to continue to be available uh, over the next five years, and it's, it's going to transform Mississippi, as I said. Can you kind of educate our listeners on that transition of responsibility? Um, I know that the Public Service Commission had its hand on broadband and now Beam mostly is over all of that. Can you just kind of educate us on what that transition looked like and how you two are working together currently? Yeah, sure. We, um, for some reason, even though the Public Service Commission didn't have the authority, uh, and, and jurisdiction over broadband, we somehow ended up with it. And, uh, so we were kind of the vocal point of getting that started. And the, uh, the commission, you know, kind of grabbed the ball and started understanding that the maps weren't accurate. We started, uh, we started a program to uh to start tracing down where we were deficient in areas and where it wasn't served and it turned out to be a huge swath of Mississippi. Um the need meeting with the governor and the legislature and the lieutenant governor then I shared with them uh as did other commissioners um the need uh to to put this in its own entity because it is too it was too big and too overwhelming uh, for a regulatory agency who had no jurisdiction there to begin with. They initially gave that $1.2 billion to the public utility staff. That's our staff attorneys because they didn't have anywhere else to put it at the time. We were able to help get it out, and uh, Sally Doty was director of that office then. She did it, an excellent job of dispersing, tracking that money, and finding uh, those in need well, once that first uh, bundle of money went out, she agreed that we needed it to be separate because it was it was commingling two agencies, and and our staff attorneys were staff attorneys that were focused on uh, you know researching regulatory stuff for us. So. The governor and the legislature agreed. legislature put it through and, and funded that office, and I think it's funded for the next 10 years. And it's funded out of federal funds, so it doesn't cost the taxpayers of Mississippi any money. And so now you have a consolidated effort, a group of people that do nothing but track this information down. You know, it's not every day that Mississippi gets 2 and a half, three and a half billion billion to invest in infrastructure. So we need to keep an eye on the ball there. And I think uh, Director Doty does that. What else can Southern Mississippians in general, what else can they look forward to with this new, uh, with this beam funding? What do you want your constituents to know the most about this uh, federal
2: money that's coming in soon?
1: If you're in Mississippi and you don't have Internet, you're going to have Internet at some point. But this is a process and this is laying hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles of fiber optic lines this is a combination of a multitude of of uh, utility providers that have come together and that have expended a lot of their money to put up to do this as well so this is not just getting a whole bunch of federal money these cooperative energy companies have been doling out millions of their own dollars investing in Mississippi. So it's important to thank them all and be patient with them, because if you don't have it yet, it just means they hadn't got to that end of the line. The second thing that's most important to me is if if you don't have it, we don't know it. You have to communicate with uh, the BEAM office, and that, again, is very easy by going – broadband ms.com are are calling the beam office and telling them if you if you are not able to have any type of internet service and lastly i'd just like to say there are a lot of people working on this there are a lot of people and just it's going to take time it's just like when franklin delano roosevelt had to put power across america It took years to get power lines ran all over this. This is is our time in history where we're putting light power lines. We're putting fiber optic lines. It takes time. Please be patient with the people who are trying to help you. Chairman Dane Maxwell with the Public Service Commission of Mississippi, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.
2: Coming up, commercial oyster harvesting along the Gulf Coast is in a decades-long decline. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Listen to MPB Think Radio at 10 on weekday mornings for shows about your legal rights, modern technology, car repair, and other topics of interest. Programs made by Mississippians for Mississippians on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Oysters have defined coastal Mississippi both culturally and economically for centuries. But over the last two decades, oyster population, oyster populations have become just about extinct. Reginald Blaylock is interim director of the University of Southern Mississippi's Marine Agriculture Center, or rather, Aqua culture center he talks to our michael McEwen about factors leading to the decline and the effects on local economies
3: oysters historically have been a big deal in mississippi uh in terms of our culture our seafood industry has supported uh uh, a huge seafood industry in the past Uh, And that's apart from the biological functions that that, that oysters provide in the environment in terms of filtering water and providing structural uh, uh, complexity to to reefs. But historically, Mississippi has harvested a lot of oysters. Um, In, for example, 2005, we're harvesting somewhere uh, just shy of 500,000 sacks of oysters. Today, we're harvesting almost none commercially. Uh, So uh, there's been a big change uh, over the recent past, uh, caused by a variety of things, but we're in a position now that we really have to think about what we want to do to try to... um, Restore uh, the oyster industry and maintain the, uh, some level of the oyster in in, in our culture. Um, and so, what we're doing is trying to develop uh, aquaculture uh, as a way to both uh, help restore reefs and serve as economic development to provide uh, opportunities for people to for jobs. Uh, to grow oysters commercially uh, uh, that can support uh, the, the market.
0: And what have some of those challenges been to, I guess, this declining oyster population?
3: Well, there have been a lot of things that happened uh, since 2005, including uh, hurricanes, uh, oil spills, uh, freshwater diversions, uh along with the the typical things that that affect uh, uh, natural resource populations uh, over harvesting, disease, uh, climate uh, uh, change, a whole bunch of things uh, acting in concert uh, to put us in the situation that that, that we're
0: in now. Could you speak a little more on the freshwater diversion issues?
3: Well, you know, the... um, Bonne Carey Spillway um, was opened uh, for significant amounts of time uh, not too long ago, and that diverts an enormous amount of fresh water uh, through Mississippi Sound. And, uh, you know, oysters are pretty well adapted to short term changes in uh, water levels and salinity, but uh, when, you know, with prolonged uh, exposure to, to fresh water they just they just can't survive it
0: I guess I'm wondering with the over harvesting is that just from the commercial industry that's been leading to that is there an answer to that
3: uh, yeah I mean if you look at what happened in the East Coast and various places just uh, you know we harvest a lot of oysters and uh, eventually uh, it, it, it catches up with us. Whether it's oysters or any kind of, uh, of seafood, we've seen um, many examples of where uh, we have uh, uh, failed to uh, uh, manage the, uh, the harvest uh, appropriately, sustainably, let me put it that way.
0: And so that in concert with some environmental issues such as the BP oil spill in 2010 and the freshwater diversion, that's all kind of collectively contributing to this issue?
3: Yes, it would be unfair to pick out one thing only. Um, It's just that it's all happening at the same time.
0: And so you spoke of 2005 as kind of I guess, a barometer on how much of a percentage of oyster populations here in Mississippi have gone down since then. And it's been about 18 years, which is, I think, in the grand scheme of things, a considerable amount of time. How much of an economic impact has that decline in oyster populations brought to Mississippi?
3: Well, I mean, if you think about 500,000 sacks of oysters, versus zero sacks of oysters. Um, That's a lot fewer people. (laughs) Um, A lot fewer oysters coming on to the the market and a lot fewer opportunities for, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, working on the water uh, to have opportunities.
0: And so I suppose that fishermen and people who harvest oysters would be the primary population that's impacted by that? Are there any groups of people or economic sectors that are affected maybe secondarily or in a tertiary way by this?
3: Well, the thing about seafood is that there is the seafood industry and there are all the ancillary industries that support it. Uh, so people that work in the seafood industry, they need uh, fuel, they need uh, um, uh, parts, They uh, need food. uh, Then the product has to be processed. It has to be shipped. Uh, So it's kind of a a cascading effect through the economy. Um, Mm -hmm. So it affects lots of different people uh, in different uh, that, that you might not immediately think about being involved in the seafood industry.
2: That's Reginald Blaylock of USM's Marine Aquaculture Center. He says to combat declining populations of oysters, they are working to expand an oyster larvae hatchery or hatchery to later stock in the wild as well as aquaculture systems to harvest oysters in a controlled environment. Coming up, this week's History is Lunch examines a case of roadhouse justice. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On Money Talks, we discuss money news and take your questions about personal finance. For 15 years, we've provided free financial information for Mississippians. I hope you can join me, Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, co-host of Money Talks, Tuesdays at 9 a.m. or anytime on our podcast. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Historian Trent Brown has been writing about Mississippi pretty much all of his career. His latest book, Roadhouse Justice, examines the case of Barnes, a young black woman who in 1951 shot and killed a white intruder while working as an overnight caretaker at a beer joint in southwestern Mississippi. Barnes is presenting Roadhouse, or rather Brown is presenting Roadhouse, Roadhouse Justice at History is Lunch at the two Mississippi Museums. He spoke with our Michael Guidry ahead of today's event.
3: A
4: 21 year old African American woman, Patty Lee Barnes, worked at a roadhouse or beer joint owned by a white man named Rob Lee. And one evening after the bar closed, three men who had been drinking at the bar returned, tried to gain access to the bar and to Hattie Lee Barnes, she defended herself by shooting one of them. She was charged with murder, and the from that shooting, castated a whole set of ultimately four trials in three different counties and a period of four years before Barnes was ultimately free.
5: You are a native Mississippian. Uh, you write a lot about Mississippi, and, and, and in those writings really kind of um, take moments like this and then examining how race and sex and, and other factors intersect uh, within the justice system. My question about this: What what drew you to really focus your historical research and historical writing on, on this format?
4: I, as you say, I'm a I'm a native Mississippian. I was born in Macomb. I grew up in Brookhaven. I uh, did my undergraduate degree at the University of Mississippi, and Mississippi is filled with rich and interesting stories. Um, I came across these two most recent books on crime kind of accidentally. Literally, someone sent me a Facebook message asking me what I knew about the subject of the book before Roadhouse Justice, and I had to say, I don't know anything about it. And so that spurred my interest in writing that book. And on this book, Roadhouse Justice, I was led to that. By my interest in one of the principal figures in both of my recent books, an attorney named Joe Pigott. But you ask more generally about why I'm interested in these true crime stories. I think that they have many things to say about the way that crime and social class and race intersect in Mississippi as they do in all American places. But Mississippi is my subject. Mississippi is the place that interests me. And I think that um, your listeners and any reader of this book should know that in counties across the state, there are many stories that are as interesting and revealing of the history of the place as any of the things that I've written about.
5: When writing a book like this, I I assume you largely have to rely on court records, official documents, um, which are are certainly going to be produced by, by white men, by white men in authority. So what challenges do you come across when trying to research and, and tell the story from and really find find out the truth and the perspective of of in this in this case a woman like Hattie Lee Barnes, what challenges do you come trying to find her perspective and her voice, all of the documentation, all the historical record? Uh, has a has a white male perspective?
4: Oh you're absolutely correct from the moment that she shot the man who was trying to assault her, Barnes was well aware that she was enmeshed in a system that was fundamentally stacked against her every person that she encountered through this process from the sheriff To the prosecutor, to the judge, to the 12 men who sat on the jury, literally every person that she encountered in the process was a white man. And to white Mississippians of the period, that would have been literally unremarkable, I suppose. But to a person like Barnes, she would have been well aware of the dangers that she faced and the need to what she said and what she did. But the the remarkable thing to me about Barnes is that from the beginning through the end, she made no attempt to evade justice. She made no attempt to um, hide, to lie. She said that she did what she did, but she did it to defend herself. And she was a, a woman of remarkable courage and and uh, grit and determination, but at her at one of the trials which she testified, Barnes said, in answer to an attorney's question, that she did not know where she had been born. She knew she was born in Mississippi, but wasn't sure where. And that itself speaks to one of the challenges of recovering the lives of plain Mississippians like Hattie Lee Barnes. If it weren't for these trials in which Barnes testified or was prosecuted, um, it's likely that she certainly would not have come to my notice. And so um, I try to be very attentive to the fact that her voice through these legal records, you know, is calculated, you might say, that she is aware that she is in an adversarial process, that she's thinking about what is in her best interest to say. But what is remarkable to me about Barnes is that she was consistent whenever she testified in court, telling the truth about what she did, that she was determined to defend herself, and she made no bones about that.
5: And Hattie Lee Barnes is the subject, the central figure in your book, Roadhouse Justice, which is the topic of today's history is lunch at the two Mississippi museums. We've been speaking with Trent Brown. Trent, thank you so much for taking some time with us this morning.
4: Michael, thank you for your time. I appreciate it.
2: This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.